Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Joyride. We are beginning a series from the book of Philippians this morning, taking a ride through that book over the next five weeks, discovering how we can find joy in the midst of life circumstances. And honestly, I cannot think of a better setup for a series on joy than what we've just experienced over the last 20 or 30 minutes, hearing our children sing. Uh, about Jesus, singing together with you, hearing your voices lift up, our, our good, good Father, my heart is full. You know, sometimes when we introduce a new series, we have to work pretty hard to get people excited. I don't know if you remember that year-long series, an in-depth study of the genealogies of Scripture uh, that we did a few years back. We had to, we had to do a, a big sales job uh, that time, but a series on joy, you don't have to sell, right? I mean, everybody wants to hear a series on joy because everybody wants joy. We all want joy. The problem is it's elusive. It's hard to find. Sometimes joy feels like when you're out driving in in West Texas on the highway and you see that mirage out there and you swear that if you just got it close enough, you could get it. But as soon as you get closer, it disappears and goes a little farther away. Joy feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? It doesn't. Uh, It's not easy to find, but it doesn't stop us from trying. People are always trying to find joy. And I think if you break it down, there are a couple of specific ways people tend to try to find joy. And in honor of school almost being out and almost being summer, I'm going to talk about it using an image of swimming pools, if that's okay, all right? So the first way I think people tend to find joy uh, is like a guy who really wants to have a pool in his backyard. So after work, every day, he, he starts digging in his backyard. And it goes on for several months and he digs this, this ginormous hole, the size of an Olympic swimming pool. And after a few months, uh, finally the, the project is finished and uh, he, he, he decides, well, I need to, to fill it up. So he grabs his garden hose and he starts filling it up. And he stands there day after day after day, but it never fills up. No, longer how long, no matter how long he runs the hose, it just stays empty. The water keeps seeping through the dirt at the bottom of the hole and all he has is a muddy mess. I think that's a good picture of the first way that people tend to find joy. The philosophers have a name for it. They call it hedonism. Hedonism, it's the pursuit of pleasure. And it goes like this. It says, we we try to find joy by realizing all our desires, by having big dreams, and then by trying to figure out a way to get all of our circumstances to line up just right so that we realize those dreams. The problem is, it's really hard to get the pool to fill up. The water seems to leak out the bottom just as fast as we put it in the top. And hedonism turns out to be a dead end. Well, the guy, he's frustrated, but he's not deterred. So he goes up to Walmart. And what he does is he buys himself a kiddie pool. Uh, You know a kiddie pool, right? A little circle about five feet in diameter. He gets the kiddie pool. He brings it home. He gets the garden hose. And this time he actually can fill it up. And so he fills it up. He's excited. He climbs in. And in one sense, it's great because the pool is full. But on the other hand... It's a kiddie pool. It's kind of like taking a a bath in your backyard, really, when you get down to it. Well, that's the second, that's a picture of the second way uh, that people tend to find joy. The philosophers have a name for this one, too. They call it stoicism. Stoicism. Stoicism says that joy isn't found in realizing your desires, but in reducing your desires. Or in its most extreme form, removing your desires altogether. It's saying, well, if I can't get what I want, I'm just going to lower my expectations so that I won't be disappointed. And the thing is, stoicism can work to some extent in keeping you from being disappointed. But it also keeps you from being fulfilled as you sit there in your metaphorical kiddie pool. So stoicism turns out to be a dead end on the road to joy. And so the question is, what's the answer? If joy isn't found in realizing your desires, if it's not found in reducing your desires, 
Where is it found? Well, that's the exact question that we're going to try to answer in this series. And I think Philippians is a great place for us to start because Paul doesn't use either of these strategies, but still somehow he lives with a sense of deep and abiding joy despite his difficult circumstances. And in this series, we're going to try to find out how that kind of joy can be accessible to us as well. Today's passage comes from Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to start reading at verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. May God bless the reading of his word. All right, so let's start with a little bit of context. The book of Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Uh, Philippi is a town that's in modern-day Greece. Uh, Paul had planted this church a decade or so earlier, and now he's writing him a letter from in prison. There's a little debate between scholars about where he was in prison when he wrote this letter, but most scholars think he was in Rome under house arrest about a decade after he planted the church in Philippi. In house arrest, he would have been chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. Now, he's been put in prison for preaching the gospel, which for Paul is like the worst possible circumstance, keeping him from from realizing his dream. His Olympic-sized swimming pool would seem to be empty. But even still, this book is, is one of the most joyous books in the whole Bible. 16 different times Paul uses some form of the word joy or rejoice in Philippians. It's really amazing. Despite his circumstances, Paul somehow finds an overwhelming sense of joy. So the question for us is, where does Paul find his joy? How can he be joyful in the midst of such a frustrating situation? The overall answer that we're going to find throughout the series is that Paul found his joy in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. In Jesus and in the gospel. The gospel is the good news about Jesus and what he's doing in the world. The gospel, this good news about Jesus is Paul's number one treasure. It's his number one priority. But throughout the book, we're also going to find that there are specific facets of the gospel, specific impacts or outgrowths of the gospel that bring Paul particular joy. And they aren't always what you would expect. As we go through the book, we're going to see that there are all these unanticipated places where Paul finds joy. And we're going to look to see how they can bring us joy as well. We find the first place right at the beginning of the letter. In the third verse of the first chapter, he's talking about the Philippian Christians. And Paul says this, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with, and here it is, joy. So four verses in, Paul's already talking about joy. And what is it that he says brings him joy? He says it's thinking about and praying about these friends in Philippi. And now really, that's not that unexpected, right? I mean, if you were to ask the average person on the street, what is it that brings you joy? Chances are good that a person or two would make the list, right? 
Whether we're Christians or not, we, we all know that innately, that, that we can find joy in others, that they can be a source of joy. It's part of being human. But here's where the unexpected part comes in. The vast majority of the time, we tend to find joy in people who are like us, people who are similar to us. We, we find joy in spending time with people who like the same things we like, who go to the same places we go, who dress the same way we dress, who speak the same language we speak, who vote the same way we vote. By, by nature, our connection with people is based on similarity. We connect with people who are like us. But here's the thing, Paul and the Philippians are radically different. They're radically different. Paul is a Jew and the Philippians are Gentiles. Paul is from Asia, the Philippians are from Europe. He's only spent uh, a total of a few months together with them and most of that was over 10 years earlier. How, how, is Paul, how is Paul finding joy in these people? We'll take a look at the next part of the passage. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Where does Paul find joy? He finds it in a gospel partnership with the Philippians. In gospel partnership. Paul's affection for these people, the joy he experiences when he thinks of them, when he prays for, him, for them, it's not based on a shared background, it's not based on shared interest or any other worldly commonality. It's based on a spiritual commonality. Their partnership in the gospel. The Greek word that's translated partnership in this verse uh, is a really important word. Some of you may have heard it before. The word is koinonia. Let's say that together. Koinonia. In English, it's often translated fellowship. But, but the true meaning is really deeper than that. It's not just fellowship. It's a deep and abiding partnership or communion. The word implies uh, mutual commitment and even mutual sacrifice financially and otherwise. Based on whatever it is that these people share in common. So what Paul's saying here is that even though on the outside, he and the Philippians could not be more different. Even though there would have been a time when Paul would have thanked God that he wasn't like those Philippians. He is a pious Jew. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those heathen Gentiles. Despite all these differences, now he's saying that they're, they're united. They're, they're united by something even more important than what divides them. And they're united by their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are gospel partners. And Paul says they've been partners in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day. I wonder what he was thinking about as he wrote uh, this letter. I have to think that he, his mind raced back to a decade earlier when he very, very first met uh, the Philippians. You can read the story about this in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and his friend Silas went to Philippi. And one Sabbath day they went out to uh, a river outside uh, the city and they saw a group of women praying there. One of the women was named Lydia and she became the very first convert to Christianity in Europe. I'm sure he was thinking about a little while later when, when God miraculously healed a demon-possessed slave girl through Paul and Silas. I'm sure he thought about that amazing story there in Acts 16 where God sent an earthquake to open the prison doors. Paul and Silas had been put in prison and the, the doors flung open and the jailer and all of his family became Christians and were baptized. Paul and the Philippians had experienced some amazing gospel stuff together. And here they are uh, a decade later and the Philippians are still following Jesus. They're still making Christ's name known. And now Paul's in prison again. That was a theme in his ministry. And it would have been so easy for the Philippians to turn their back on him, wouldn't it? 
mean, it's been 10 years. It would be so easy for them to forget him, but they don't forget him. And in fact, quite the contrary, they're still partnering with him. They even send him a financial gift to support him along with his friend Epaphroditus. Even though they'd only seen each other a few times and they were so different in so many ways, they were united by the gospel. They were experiencing koinonia. Friends, I think there is an extremely important lesson for us in this today. Because all around us, all around us, our culture is fragmenting. It's breaking up into these smaller and smaller pieces as we become more and more polarized. People are retreating into their little silos with others who think just the same way they do. And if anyone disagrees with them on any point, then they're shunned and excluded. And here's the tragic thing, church. The tragic thing is that the church in America, in many ways, is letting this virus of polarization and fragmentation infect us. Even believers are starting to treat people who think differently from them in ways that are the exact opposite of how Christ calls us to treat one another. So often, tragically, we're treating each other with hostility instead of with grace. Church family, may it not be so with us. May it not be so with us. Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. You remember how? By the way you love one another. By the way you love one another. Brothers and sisters, we are partners in the gospel. We are fused together by our experience of grace. We are meant to live in koinonia. Look, I recognize that we have many differences in our congregation and in the church uh, as a whole in America. But as we like to say around here, we are different together. We're different together. It's my prayer that this church would be a place where our community could find a holy alternative to the hatred and the hostility that's far too common in our culture. It's my prayer that, that as a church, you and I would work toward koinonia, toward loving unity, even with those who see things differently than we do. Wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if this place could be a place where people who come from different ethnic and racial backgrounds, people who come from different language backgrounds, different political parties, different socioeconomic groups could say what unites us is stronger than what divides us. We may see some things differently, but we are one in Christ. Amen. May it be so, Lord Jesus. So Paul finds joy in this gospel partnership that he shares with the Philippians. And in the time that remains, uh, what I want to do is to go through the rest of the passage and talk about what this gospel partnership looks like. Not just so we can understand where Paul was coming from, but so also so, so we can find joy by investing in these same kinds of partnerships. I want to point out three things about this koinonia, this partnership that Paul shares with the Philippians. And the first is that they are partners in grace. Partners in grace. Now this first one shouldn't be surprising because as we mentioned earlier, Paul is obsessed with the gospel. And the gospel, the good news about Jesus it's all about grace. It's all about grace. What do, what do we mean when we say grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God toward man. It's God's kindness to us that we don't deserve. Some people like to define the word grace using an acrostic of that word, G-R-A-C-E. They say God's riches at Christ's expense. I like that. Grace is the blessing of God that we don't deserve, paid for by Jesus' blood. Friends, here is, the, here is the fact, here is the truth. We were lost and hopeless and Jesus rescued us. Aren't you so grateful for that? 
As one of our deeply rooted verses says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is all about grace. And in verse 7, Paul makes it really clear, really explicit, that this grace is the foundation of their partnership, of their koinonia. Check it out. He says, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Paul's saying no matter what situation he's in, whether he's out planting churches or whether he's chained to a Roman guard, he knows that the Philippians are his partners in grace. And what is it about this experience of grace that binds people together? I think it goes back to that word rescue. When, when you've been rescued together, it binds you together. I read an article last week about a guy named E.C. Rivera. E.C. was an army ranger during the Korean War. Here's a picture of him. In one particularly bloody battle, he and his company of 65 men were surrounded by enemy troops. It looked like all was lost, and this was the end. But E.C. heroically crawled up a napalm-burned hill under heavy fire to try to get a radio signal uh, to, to send for help. When he got to the top of the hill in the distance, he saw four American tanks and he was able to get through on his, on his radio and the tanks came and all 65 men were rescued. Not a single one was lost. And the article that I read, that really the subject of the article was the lifelong bonds that were forged out of that experience. Here's a picture of E.C. and one of his fellow soldiers at a recent reunion. It makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense after going through something like that, where you think your life is over and then you're rescued together, that would have to bond you for life, right? Friends, that is our story. That is our story. That was Paul's and the Philippians' story. It's your story and my story. We were in mortal danger. We were surrounded. It looked like all was lost. But Jesus climbed a hill. Jesus climbed a hill called Calvary, and he rescued us. He brought us to safety. And not just us, but all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So now, how could we live in anything other than koinonia? How could we live in anything other than gospel partnership? Fused together by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we've been rescued together. We're partners in grace. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end. We're also partners in growth. When God rescued us, it wasn't the end of the story. It was actually the beginning. Our salvation is not the finish line. It's the starting gate. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. Paul says, every time he prays for them, he prays with joy because of this gospel partnership, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I love this verse. I love this verse so much. Paul, Paul's telling the Philippians that God has a plan for them. And his plan for them is to grow to be like Jesus. He started it the day they received the gospel, the day they, they gave their hearts and their lives to Christ. And what God starts he always finishes. He always finishes. It makes me think of an iconic building that's about 30 or 45 minutes north of here. It's up in Sanger, Texas. Uh, we've got a picture of it. If you've ever driven up I-35 north of Denton, you may have seen this building on the, on the west side of the road. Has anybody seen this, by the way? Okay, a few of you have. You've probably wondered like I did. Well, I did some research and found out the story about this. 
Over 30 years ago, a family named the Powells started to build this mansion. They wanted to build a 25,000 square foot uh, mansion, get this, where they could raise and show their prize-winning Appaloosa horses. Their, their, their dream was they were actually building an elevator that was a large enough to fit a horse inside because they wanted to bring their horses up to the third floor so they could show them at parties with their friends. Quite a dream. Unfortunately, uh, the Powells fell on hard financial times. They had some health problems. They ended up getting divorced and they stopped construction before the home was finished. And for 30 years, 30 years, this mansion has sat there vacant, unfinished, and abandoned. I read uh, the other day that someone bought it last year and is hoping to turn it into a wedding venue. Of course, wedding venue, right? I hope they're successful because every time I drive past it, it makes, it makes me so sad. I mean, someone had such high hopes, such big dreams, and for 30 years, it's just sat there abandoned and vacant, half-finished, gathering dust. It's tragic, right? Friends, I want to encourage you with this. This is not how God works. This is not how God works. He doesn't start something in us and then abandon us half-finished. God has started an amazing work in your life and in mine. And we can be confident that he will complete it. And when it's done, it is going to be stunning. It will make this 25,000 square foot mansion look like a shack because it's going to result in us looking like our Savior, Jesus. Now, it may take a while. The construction is not going to be finished right away. But listen, a day is coming. Paul calls it the day of Christ Jesus. A day is coming when the project will be over and our growth will be complete. Praise the Lord. Because what he starts, he finishes. He finishes. You know, when we truly believe this, when we, when we internalize this truth, it changes a lot of things for us. First of all, it changes how we view ourselves. Do you ever get discouraged by your weakness? you ever get discouraged by your own brokenness? Man, I know I do. When we begin to understand this truth, we can have hope and joy even in our own weaknesses, even in our failures, because we know that God is working in us to conform us to the image of his son. And what God starts, he finishes. Not only does this change the way we view ourselves, it also can change the way we view others. Do you ever get frustrated with the brokenness of the people around you? Do you ever get frustrated with the selfishness of people around you? When we, when we begin to know and understand this truth, it can change the way we view others. We don't have to be frustrated with them. Instead, we can be patient with them because we know God's not through yet. And we know that he's still working. And what God starts, he always finishes. It changes the way we view ourselves. It changes the way we view others. It also can change the way we pray. Check out how Paul, how Paul prays for his friends in verses 9 through 11. This is so beautiful. He says, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Notice, Paul doesn't pray for better circumstances, does he? No, he prays for growth. He didn't pray that the Philippian swimming pool would be full. He prays they would look more like Jesus. Let's break it down. He says, increasingly, he, pr he prays they would be increasingly filled with love. And love not just as a mushy feeling, but love that's, that's rooted in knowledge and insight. 
He prays that they would be filled with discernment. They'd be able to tell what is true and what is noble and what is right. And he prays that this discernment would lead them to purity, that they would be filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Jesus, that increasingly they would grow to become like him. Can you imagine what it would be like to have Paul in your grow group at prayer request time? You know, one person says, gosh, my boss is driving me crazy. Could, could you just pray he gets transferred to another branch? You know, nothing, no, no sickness, just transferred. And I say, yeah, I've got this hangnail. It's really been bothering me. And pray that God takes it away. And then Paul says, I just prayed that our love would abound more and more. We'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And yeah, I meant that too, that and my hangnail. That's what I meant. Let's let the Spirit do an audit on our prayer lives this week. Let's, let's let him teach us not to pray just for better circumstances, but for stronger faith, for deeper hope. Let's let the Spirit teach us to pray for growth, being confident that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. This gospel partnership that starts with grace leads to growth. We're partners in grace and we're partners in growth, but that's not the end. There's one more characteristic of this partnership I want to mention. Uh, When we put verse 11 up here a minute ago, we left off the very last part, so let's go ahead and put the rest of it on the screen. Paul prays that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's the result of this growth? What's the result of this righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ? Paul says it's the result is God's praise, God's glory. We're partners in grace, we're partners in growth, and we are partners in glory. The goal of this growth Paul is praying for is not that people would see how great the Philippians are. The goal Paul is aiming for is that that people would see how great God is. The end result of this grand work that Jesus is doing, this magnificent project where he is changing us into the image of Christ, is the glory and praise of God. We are partners in glory. Through the power of the gospel, this is amazing, you and I have the blessing and the privilege of shining a spotlight on God the Father. You know how in the Lord's Prayer we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That name hallowed means glorified, honored, praised. Paul is saying that we get to be part of the answer to that prayer. That this grace-fueled growth in our lives leads to God's name being hallowed, being glorified. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and praise who? Your Father who is in heaven. This grace-fueled growth in our lives brings glory to Jesus. As we send our roots down deeply into him, as we remain in the vine, as the Holy Spirit changes us, he fills our lives with his fruit, with the fruit of the Spirit. And this brings glory and praise to our gracious God here on earth as we reflect him increasingly and on into eternity as we spend eternity with him. We're partners in grace, we're partners in growth, and we're partners in God's glory. And through this koinonia, this gospel partnership, we can find immeasurable joy. I started the sermon this morning talking about the poor guy who tried to find joy by realizing all his desires as he dug the giant pool and tried to fill it with his garden hose. 
And then when that didn't work, he tried to reduce his desires and he bought the kiddie pool, but that didn't work either. So here at the end, what, how does the story finish? Is he doomed to experience a life where he never truly finds joy? Oh, no. Paul would say, absolutely not. Paul would tell us that, that joy isn't found in realizing your desires or in reducing your desires, but instead letting God redirect your desires. Letting God redirect your desires away from your circumstances and toward your Savior. Redirecting your desires away from your situation and toward your salvation. Friends, if Paul were here today, I think what he would say is this. I think he would say, stop trying to fill the swimming pool of your desires with the garden hose of your circumstances. It's not going to work. Instead, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He is the source of living water. He is the, the river that never runs dry. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. So friends, this week, let's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another and all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. Let's love our neighbors as ourselves, even when they come from a different background from us, even when they think differently from us. Friends, let's live in koinonia as we follow Jesus together. And as we do, may we swim in the deep waters of his grace, experiencing the spirit-empowered growth that comes from Christ. And may all of it bring glory and honor and praise to our gracious God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of your grace. Thank you that we have been rescued. Thank you that you climbed the hill of Calvary and rescued us from mortal danger. We praise you. We praise you for that. Thank you for the growth that we can experience through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're, you, you have begun a good work in us and you're going to carry it to completion. And we pray that all of this would lead to glory and honor and praise to our Heavenly Father. God, I want to pray for each and every person in the room uh, this morning. For those who have not yet made the decision uh, to make Jesus their Lord, God, I pray today would be the day of salvation. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, Lord, would you lead us into koinonia, lead us into that gospel partnership, regardless of our differences, Lord. May you give us unity. May we find joy. May we find joy as we follow you together. In Jesus' name we pray.